while they're rolling out, uh, I want you, uh, if you brought your Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter. Yep. While you're turning there, I'll turn your attention to uh, our, our bulletin. It's been, uh, it's got a new look to it, a new feel to it. And so if you're a guest with us today, man, uh, uh, we want to welcome you, but we also want to point your attention to uh, at the bottom of the card, you can fold it and tear off as a connection card. Uh, we would love to connect with you. If there's ways we can pray for you or serve you, or uh, if you want to know more about Aspen Grove, man, fill this card out and you can drop it in our, our tithe and offering boxes in the back. Uh, I was told this morning by my daughter that all the children's ministry have been filling it out and making up fun names. So uh, I told them I'm counting them as part of our attendance, whether they're here or not. So, like, that's, the, that's how preachers count. And so, so uh, is everyone uh, Bible open to 1 Peter? 1 Peter. Awesome. Go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms now. Are you feeling confused? Uh, that's how I felt. That's how I felt. I spent uh, two weeks ago, uh, we wrapped up a teaching series out of Romans, and I knew where I was going next. This next series was going to be 1 Peter. So two weeks ago, I spent all week digging deep into 1 Peter, all about living stones, and I became passionate and excited and began to write and create this whole teaching series around 1 Peter. And last weekend, I was riding in the car with my wife, and and. Uh, I, I don't know if it was like the field of dreams voice or whatever, but, it, but a small, still voice settled on me and says, I think you should teach the Psalms. And, and as soon as the voice came out, I just, I spoke it. I said, Amy, I think maybe I'm supposed to teach on the Psalms. And she's like, okay, whatever. <clears throat> and later that weekend, it happened again. And, and the third time it happened, I, it just it came right out of my mouth. I, I said, Amy, I think I'm supposed to teach the Psalms. And she, she looked at me and said, okay, well, maybe you should teach the Psalms. And I said, I don't want to teach the Psalms. I want to teach 1 Peter. I just spent a week studying 1 Peter. I don't know anything about the Psalms. And that's true. <laughs> if you go look at my shelf in there, like, uh, I got all kinds of books about 1 Peter. I got all kinds of theology about 1 Peter. I know it's, it's logic and it's reason and it's purpose and it's style and it's mission. And, and I know how it fits for us. And so what are we teaching today? Psalms. I don't have any books on my shelf about Psalms. But here we are. Like the God has led us to this place. And uh, what I love about teaching is to pay attention to that still, small voice. So I don't know what Psalms has for us. I don't even know when this series is going to end. I just know this is where we're supposed to be. But I still tell you I'd rather teach First Peter. <laughs> First Peter, yeah, maybe it's going to come. Uh, I don't know when. It's, it's going to come. Yeah, we ought to be done. Um. I would rather teach 1 Peter because Psalms is something different. It is. Um, it's, it's as different as, as French is to English. It's, it's unique. It has a language and a style all its own. If, if you hold the, the, all of the Psalms together, there's 150 of them tucked neatly into your Bible. It, it's really, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in, in your Bible you have a song book. 
Uh, some of you who are younger don't know what a songbook is, but okay, so like, like we used to have these things before this, we used to have these things in our, in our pews, in our chairs, and you opened it up and there were songs and there were these other things called notes. And like, you know, like you had the whole thing, like, like there it was. But, but if you look carefully in your Bible, maybe you didn't know this, you have a song book, 150 songs or hymns. The collection of psalms is sometimes called the Psalter. And this, this might mess with some of you who are from a Church of Christ tradition, but the word Psalter is actually the word for a musical instrument. The words of the Psalms, uh, we know the Psalms is a, is a song book because in the Psalms there's this word that appears. And, and the truth is, like, we don't really know what it means, but the word is Selah. Have you heard this word? So sometimes in the Psalms, like, it's going along and you're reading along and then there's just this word, Selah. And we don't know what it means. We, we just know that it's a musical term. It, it means something like a pause or a hold or a moment to, to uh, uh, I don't know, it's like when the worship team says a prayer to change key. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's what it means. But we know it's a, it's a term of music to, to, th- that causes us to stop and to think about the things that we are saying. The Psalms, the Psalter are, um, it, it, it is scripture set to music. But it's more than a songbook, it's also poetry. In, in the middle of your Bible, you have a book of poetry and it uses hyperbole and parallelism and, and lyric. It has a vocabulary that, that's purposely metaphorical. In the Psalms, you have the full range of emotion. There are praise psalms and history psalms, celebration psalms, thanksgiving psalms, wisdom psalms, trust psalms, and even if you look closely, lament psalms. When C.S. Lewis looked at the Psalms and tried to approach it and, and even wrote about the Psalms, what he said from his experience is, it, it echoes my experience. I, was, I don't have any books of the Psalms on my shelf. And, and what he said was, I write to the unlearned about things in which I am unlearned myself. What he means is that the Psalms is, is, is not a work of scholarship or it's not an apology or a form of higher criticism or, or theology. It's, it's not a doctrinal treatise. It's not even a sermon. And what he means is no one is an expert on the Psalms. Like when you approach the Psalms, when we open the Psalms, we are all amateurs, and the Psalms appeal is, is different. It appeals to a different part of us. Its emphasis is not on reason, being reasonable or logical, but they are inherently emotional. It is to appeal to the emotions, to evoke feelings rather than propositional thinking. And to stimulate a response on the part of the individual that goes beyond mere cognitive understanding of certain facts. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little incarnation. You know what that word means? It means to put flesh on something, to give it a body. 
giving body to what had been before invisible or inaudible. I love what Derek Kinder said. I think I have his quote. He says, the, the Psalter taken on its own terms is not so much a liturgical library storing up standard literature for cultic requirements as a hospitable house well lived in where most things can be found and borrowed after some searching and, and whose first occupants have left on it everywhere the imprint of their experiences and the stamp of their characters. So we have the Psalter, but it, it, it's a songbook, but it's not just a songbook. It's a song house. Usually we hear the Psalms at funerals. But in the ancient church, it, it, was, it was not unusual to memorize what they called the entire David. David is this character who, uh, who is a warrior and, and a leader, but also a poet and musician. And, and almost half of the Psalms are attributed to him. And in the early church, they would memorize the entire David. St. Jerome said hundreds of years ago that one heard the psalms being sung in the fields and in the gardens throughout the day. The Psalter, the psalms impregnated the life of early Christianity. It's not a book to be picked up and then forgotten, but a hospitable house to be lived in. Are you falling in love? The psalms is for the romantic, for the poet, for the artist, for the musician. Coincidentally, do you know which book of the Old Testament Jesus quotes most often? Not Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus, but the Psalms. Jesus and the apostles loved the Psalms. They, they quoted the Psalms and prayed the Psalms. They lived them out. Jesus died on the cross with the words of the Psalms on his lips. Concerning the Psalms, listen to what Jesus says. Look what it says in Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus said this. He says, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the Torah, and the prophets, and in the, what's the word? Psalms must be fulfilled. Look what he says in John. In John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures, the Torah, the prophecies, the Psalms, all what? Point to me. The entire Old Testament points to God's salvation through Christ, even and especially the Psalms. Martin Luther said this about the Psalter. He said, the Psalter promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and, and pictures his kingdom and the condition and the nature of Christendom that it might well be called, what, what does he call it? A little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. He says, in the book of the Psalms, you have the entire Bible. In your Bible, you have a little Bible. Psalms is not a book of the Bible. 
but the whole thing. The Psalms is a songbook. Uh, uh, it's a book of poetry. It's a, it's a house to be lived in, even a little Bible. But Psalms is also praise at its most authentic. Um, how many of you were, were brought up in the church? Do we have anyone that wants to admit it? So I was brought up in the church. Uh, and being raised in the church, uh, there were, uh, I had, uh, uh, there was kind of like special routines and rules and things we had to do being brought up in the church. I had church clothes. Did you have church clothes? You know what I'm talking about? I had church shoes. Like it was just for one day a week I wore church shoes. Like, 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 uh, and that was for some of us, like, like the, the church, the religion, the Christianity that we were, we, we kind of grew up with. Like, like it was a, a stigma of dutifulness. Like in church, you behave a certain way, right? Like at a football game, you behave one way. In church, you behave a different way, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like with your friends, you use some words, but at church, you use different words. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? C.S. Lewis called this, like, like he talked about this, uh, this idea. Like it, it's interesting that this idea of kind of, of, of almost churchiness has been around for a long time. Like how you behave and act at church, like, like the, the, the regime of church. He, he talked about the stuffiness, the, the regime of tiptoe tread and lower voices. He talked about laborously do we go to church and dutifully do we say our prayers. He said in the church, we have a terrible concern for good taste. Have you seen this? Where some things are accepted and some things are definitely not accepted. It reminds me of the uh, of the little town in the movie Footloose. You guys know this town? Do you, you guys remember the movie Footloose? So if, if you haven't seen this movie, I can't be your friend. Um, but if you haven't seen the movie Footloose, you can go on Netflix and watch it. So what happens in Footloose is there's this incredibly small, conservative, churchy town. And the whole town is led by the minister of the church. And everyone in the town lives in this very kind of standardized, compartmentalized, very kind of rigid way, all guided by the church. And that is until Kevin Bacon, the new kid, moves to town. Right? You know what I'm talking about. So Kevin Bacon has come from the big city and he moves to this very orderly church kind of town. And Kevin Bacon wants to have a dance. No, 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 no. Not in our town, the people say. And there becomes this huge hubbub because we, this is a church kind of town. This is how we live and this is how we act. We do these certain things and dancing and listening to certain kind of music. That is definitely not allowed. Our town is conservative and, and neat and tidy, and we don't need any of that other kind of stuff. And, and most of us, like when we think about, even in our world, when we think about religion and Christianity, like I admit it, you think of that, that town from Footloose. The Psalms, or here, I'll, I'll put it this way. 
the Psalms is the Kevin Bacon of the Bible. You can tweet that out if you want to. Psalms is something else. We have all this concern for how we dress and how we act and living kind of neat and orderly and tidy lives. And the, and the truth is that most preachers, teachers don't teach on the Psalms because the Psalms is something else completely. Listen to um, what C.S. Lewis said. The Psalms is, is against a kind of docile, priggish experience. The psalm stands out as something astonishingly robust and virile and spontaneous. Something we may regard as as an innocent, may regard with an innocent envy and may hope to be infected by as we read. He says, these poets knew far less reason than we for loving God. They did not know that he offered them eternal joy, still less that that he would die to win for them. Yet they express a longing for him, for his mere presence, which comes only to the best Christians or to Christians in the best moments. They long to live all the day in the temple so that they may constantly see, quote from Psalms, the fair beauty of the Lord. Lacking that encounter with him, their souls are parched like a waterless countryside, Psalm 63. They crave to be satisfied with the pleasure of his house, Psalm 65. Only there can they be at ease like a bird in the nest, Psalm 84. One day of those pleasures is better than a lifetime spent elsewhere, Psalm 10. It has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even physical desire. It is gay and jocund. They are glad and rejoice. Their fingers itch for the harp, Psalm 43, for the lute and hear, wake up lute and heart, Psalm 57. Let's have a song, bring the tambourine. Let us have clashing cymbals and clap our hands. The Psalms express an appetite for God. They delight in God that makes them dance. I love seeing, I don't know if you could see her this morning, but uh, Philip's daughter, while the worship team was playing, was in the front dancing. I was even part of a church uh, at one point in time that, that had some incredible artists and we, uh, we kind of had a dance instructor that was a part of our church and she said, I, I want to do, uh, she came to the leadership of the church and she said, she said I want to kind of do a dance worship ministry and all of the elders like crickets. <laughs> like is that in the kind of church we know and want to be? And so like kind of prayerfully, they kind of said, okay, well, maybe we'll let you try this out. And, and so this woman, she, she recruited a bunch, which ended up all being all girls, 
girls, and she she taught them kind of this routine of dance. And there was it was kind of this big day we were looking forward to. So during our worship service, at a, at a point in worship, these these girls were going to come in, and they were going to stand in the aisles, and in the we couldn't stand on the stage; we could stand in front of the stage, you know, like. Um, and just as the worship team was was going to play, they they invited these girls to come and dance. And nobody knew how this was going to take. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is either going to be bomb and everyone is going to walk out or or we don't know what's going to happen. So I grew up Church of Christ. <laughs> I had never seen anything like this in my life. Like, this was outside of my realm of, of comprehension. And I'll tell you what happened. As the band was playing and, the, and everyone was singing, these girls came in with just like an incredibly like humble and sweet spirit, not seeking attention, but, but directing all of their attention towards God. And, and maybe this freaks you out, but it was the most natural response to worship I've ever seen. In our worship, like this seemed right. It seemed right. And I sat there thinking, how did we get so far away from this? My own kids, don't, don't you want them to have an appetite for God? I want to stress what I think that, that at least I, but, but we need more. We need more of the joy and delight in God which meets us in the Psalms. I want to tell one final story as we kind of kind of wrap up this introduction to the Psalms. So you've heard me talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe some of you know know this character. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the uh, the the middle of the 20th century was a, a German Dietrich. Uh, he was he was a German uh, teacher and theologian. Traveled all over and and lived in Germany. Felt very called to Germany, but but God had called him to the states in some ways too. And while he was in the states teaching and preaching, World War II was happening. Uh, the Nazis were taking over Germany and and Europe and this whole thing. And all the while, Dietrich is is safe. Uh, in the United States, but he's feeling this call to go back to Germany, to go back to his homeland. So Dietrich had every opportunity to stay in the U.S. and to teach and to preach, but, but he said, man, God is calling me back to the place of, of my ministry. He's calling me to minister to my own people. And uh, in an incredible act of bravery, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took one of the last boats leaving the U.S. and went back into Nazi-occupied Germany. And he didn't go underground, but he continued to preach against the Nazism and the hate and, and all of the stuff. And they would cut off his radio programs. And eventually, the inevitable happened. Dietrich was arrested. He was thrown in prison. He spent more than a year in prison. But while he was in prison, he continued to preach. It's, it's a pretty amazing story if you've never read the, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
the guards noticed that even while he was in prison that this man was a pastor and, and spoke words of life and, and healing and was authentic and helpful. And so even while he was in prison, the guards would take Dietrich to different prisoners and let him pray for them and, and minister them. They even, the guards even worked out a system where he could get messages back outside to his family. He was a pastor among prisoners. He would say later, he said, even since, since he got on the ship and even when he went to, back into Germany, he said, all inner turmoil concerning the future has ceased. You must know that I still have never regretted for a moment my return. And on April 8th, 1945, Dietrich was leading a small worship service with other prisoners the text that day was, by his wounds we are healed. And in the middle of the service, the guards call, came in and called him out, and everyone knew what that meant. They let him out and immediately executed him. While he was in prison, um, it's interesting that uh, Dietrich was able to minister to all different kinds of people, people from, from all around the world. And we actually have some writings from people that were in prison with Dietrich. And I want to share with you one of the quotes that we have. It comes from a British officer named Payne Best who was in prison with Dietrich Bonhoeffer before his death. And uh, Payne Best, the British officer, says this of Dietrich. He says, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to diffuse an atmosphere of happiness of joy and even in every smallest event in life and of deep gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He goes on to say, look at this next quote. He was one of the very few men that I have ever met to whom his God was, look at those last words, real and close. I know it's going to come to no surprise to you, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a deep believer in praying the Psalms. In fact, he prayed the Psalms every single day. And the result was that his relationship with God, as seen by others, was real. And close. When was the last time for you that God felt both real and close? When others encounter you or see you or meet you, do they have the experience that your God is both real and close? That's what matters, right? Those of you who are parents, do you want your kids to know about God or do you want them to have an experience with God that is both real and close? This is the God available to you today in the Psalms. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion, and we have stations set up around the room.
On the tables, you'll find the elements of communion. It's part of our tradition. It's something we do each and every week to remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And while uh, you are taking communion today, I want to invite you again to engage God, to discover him. I want to invite you over this next time of our teaching series to enter a season of calm, a season of health, a season of restoration, a season of peace, a season of forgiveness, a season of song. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the way you have delivered his story and life to us through your word, this thing that is living and active. And Father God, I ask your blessing on us as we enter this season of Psalm. I pray that we would discover you in new ways, that our relationship with you would be anything but prudish and priggish and formal. But again, in the Psalms, that we might discover you, that you again would become to us both real and close. Father God, that's what our world desperately needs. Not a God who is uh, quiet and distant, but a God who is real and close. And so Father God, come now, send your spirit on us, As we enter this season of psalm, God bless us. Share with us your presence. We love you, Father. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,